preface here may not make any sense even once you're done with the message. You kind of go, huh? I don't get the, I don't see that. Well, if you understood where that's from, it's from Psalm chapter, uh, Psalm 2, the second Psalm. And it is in the context, it begins by, why do the nations rage? And basically, why is the world in an uproar? And of course, the, the gist of it all is that because they are in rebellion against the Lord of hosts. And so I picture in my mind the world going crazy and just railing at God of heaven for whatever and whoever and everything else. And then the next verse after that is the Lord sits in the heavens and laughs. Not that he finds that humorous, but because it is laughable that any element of God's creation dare think that they are anything, much less to go against the holy creator of the universe. And so God just goes, are you serious? It's gone that far down, huh? He's not intimidated. He's not concerned like I am right now about this mic. There we go. That might be better. At any rate, you'll see, I trust you'll see why. The title for First Samuel chapter 21, beginning in verse 7. It's where we are this morning. Now one of the servants of Saul was there that day, detained before the Lord, and his name was Doeg the Edomite. You ever known a Doeg in your life? Okay, good. I'm glad because, you know, people like biblical names and you never know. Marshall Hashbaz. Don't name your child Doeg, even on Labor Day. The chief of Saul's shepherds. David said to Ahimelech, now, is there not a spear or a sword on hand? For I brought neither my sword nor my weapons with me because the king's matter was urgent. And then the priest said, The sword of Goliath, the Philistine, whom you killed in the valley of Elah, behold, it's wrapped in a cloth behind the ephod. If you would take it for yourself, take it, for there is no other except it here. And David said, ah, there's none like it. Give it to me. And I'm sure that what he was thinking really was, I've never seen its equal. So then David arose and he fled that day from Saul and he went to Achish the king of Gath. Now, I am really glad that there is an A in the king of Achish's name because we understand that the prefix A in front of a word usually is a a negator, meaning without. For, For example, the word atheist means literally without God. The word anonymous means without a name. Okay, The word anarchy means without leadership. And so Akish with the A obviously means without quiche, which makes all the sense in the world because you can't have this mighty Philistine warrior king with the name of quiche, right? I mean, that's pretty cheesy. So I didn't come here to be made. Sp- well, yeah, I guess I did. So we're back to Doeg, <laughs> Doeg, who is a myth, a myth of a mystery character, who is a bit of a mystery character. I've obviously expended all my valuable words, and so you get what's left over here. 
He is a bit of a mystery character. He was an Edomite, which means he wasn't a Hebrew, though some academics postulate that he was perhaps a Jewish convert, which they suppose then might explain verse 7 when it states that Doeg was detained before the Lord, they say implying that being a Jewish convert, he was there at the sanctuary for probably what was some sort of ritual service necessary for his process of conversion. But you see, that is arguing from silence. And arguing from silence is very risky. And so you tend not to want to go there. So what I want to point out here, though, is an exegetical point of interest. Exegesis is the process of rightly pulling out of Scripture what is there, not putting into Scripture what we want to be there. And so in this assertion by these academics, let me make this point. The first thing that I do when somebody is arguing from silence, when we're talking about the Scriptures now, I try to think to myself... Um, can I find another example or another precedent for that situation or at least a very similar situation anywhere in the Bible? Well, what I can find right here in 1 Samuel isn't that. What I have not found anywhere in Scripture is the precedent for what this assertion is about him being attendant there for some kind of conversion process. But what I do find in our immediate context is an emphasis on the sovereignty of God in the workings of the nations, which is something that I have noted previously, not only in the book of First Samuel, but in numerous other books that we have been over uh, expressly Daniel for, for one in particular. Well, in the context or the flow of this narrative, the thread seems to once again spotlight God's sovereignty over the people and over all the nations of the earth. And again, now going to that book I talked about, Daniel, quoting from it, we read in there in Daniel 4.32, but it's one of three times it's repeated in that book. And it says, The Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind, and God bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in the context of Daniel, it's talking about uh, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, who if you remember, was uh, not exactly compliant to the Lord. And so he exerted pressure on him uniquely to where he would come to the decision and see God for who he was and basically bow his knee to the king of kings, meaning God will not override free will, but he will bring compelling circumstances into our lives to get us to make the decision that he would prefer we make for whatever reasons. So, okay, so keeping it all in mind, thinking about all that, the mention of Doeg, who is, again, a servant of Saul, remaining at the sanctuary without explanation in our text, other than to say that he was detained before the Lord, says to me that Doeg hadn't remained there, but rather he was detained there. Meaning he would have done something otherwise, but that's the difference between remaining and detaining. So he was detained there, and my point is that it would seem that God kept him there in order to be an eyewitness, as we'll see later in our passage, an eyewitness or an earwitness, if you prefer, to the whereabouts of David for whom King Saul was looking. Now that might give you a little pause. Say, wait a minute, I, I thought... 
I thought God was on David's side, and yet you're saying that God set up there being somebody there to find out where David was. That is what I'm saying, but please note that for sure the Lord is on David's side because all of this is about God's plan to get David back on the throne. And that plan is marching on without compromising anybody's freedom of choice. So now David is before the priest Ahimelech and asks him for a weapon. And Ahimelech happens to have the sword of Goliath, which we know that David scored earlier in 1 Samuel when he had cut Goliath down to size after shortening his height by a head. Pun intended. And being possibly, remember I mentioned that he could have been as possibly as tall as 9 foot 5 inches, which would make that head quite huge. I'm not kidding, it's like an orange on a toothpick. A veritable planetoid. It would be like Sputnik, quite round but pointy at parts. That's an homage to a movie, forget it. So David, armed with Goliath's sword, takes off for Gath. Now that took me aback. I'm like, whoa, wait, huh? You see, because it's not like King David, right? That is who he is. It's not like David isn't unknown. He wasn't this obscure character of the scriptures. And so Goliath, as every child in Sunday school knows and could tell you, that Goliath was from Gath. But now David's talking about retreating and escaping Saul by going into Gath. So it seems that David overhears now, though some of the troops telling King Achish in a somewhat sarcastic manner, uh, King, isn't, isn't this King David, the king over the land? Isn't this the King David of whom the masses were singing? Well, Saul killed his thousands, but David, <clears throat> pardon me, but David his ten thousands. And so verse 12 says, and David took these words to heart which sounds a lot to me like, note to self, you were in the camp of the enemy whose prime ace warrior you beheaded and whose armies afterward you decimated. You might want to think through this one again, and you might want to change your reservations tonight at the Hotel Legath. Verse 13, so David disguised his sanity before them. And David acted insanely in their hands and scribbled on the doors of the gate. I tell you that I never gave that a second thought in all of my years and many numerous times of reading through the scriptures, which means this passage. For some reason, I was just halted there and I thought, scribbling on the doors of the gate. And he was letting saliva run down into his beard. Who knew? Oh, this is an epiphany. You'll want to note this one down, tongue-in-cheek. Who knew that David was among the first taggers in recorded history? For those of you who don't know what a tagger is, it's somebody who defaces, vandalizes property by putting their gang symbol or whatever on it or writing or anything else. Now, in Los Angeles, this has been elevated to an art form very, very genuinely to an art form. If you are not aware, and you probably aren't, we used to go there, remember, because our kids used to live there. You could see it on these buildings, and we're talking about some truly spectacular art. And two of the top ten uh, taggers in Los Angeles are famous, and Shaka is one, just to give you an example of what they're capable of. 
Hello, picture. Or not. There we go. Okay. And Charlie. Now, these guys are so famous, they actually have books published of all their artwork called Vandalism. And the city of L.A. celebrates it, of course, the land of fruits and nuts. Why not? They'll celebrate the vandalism, and they have shows and 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 give credence to the the artistic value of what again is simply vandalism. So anyway, all that is to say is I really would love to know what David wrote. A taunt, maybe, maybe something like, "Yeah, real men don't eat quiche," <laughs> or have it in their name. Eh? I don't know. This is what I got to do to get through the Old Testament, okay? So, you know, I feel your pain. I feel your pain. I'm just helping you here. That David is even standing alive in front of the ruler of the Philistines is a wonder to me. But again, who is calling the shots even while human beings are calling the shots? So remembering that we never have all of the details of any kind of historical narrative given to us. We only have the selected details, the ones that we need, that God has determined through the Holy Spirit, and so those are preserved. And that David gets away with what seems to be a very flimsy plan to get out of harm's way. But when the Lord is in control, even flimsy plans work. Thy will be done. So here's another situation where the sovereign Lord of the universe is overseeing this historical unfolding because crazy as it seems to me, Akish buys it. I'm like, really? You know who this guy is? And now you're, he's pretending to be insane and you're going, oh man. And he does. He buys it. We know that from verse 15. Do I lack madmen in my kingdom that you have brought this one to act madman in my presence? Shall this one come into my house? It's all rather strange indeed. So David departed from there. And he escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all his father's household heard of it, they went down there to him. Everyone was in distress, and everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was discontented gathered to David, and he became captain over them. Now, we're told there were about 400 men with him. Okay? So David's men now rejoin him. But again, in another very strange decision, David chooses now to flee and go into the land of Moab. Hey, why is that strange or why is that such a weird decision? Well, you're going to see in a minute, but furthermore, the king of Moab in verses 3 and 4 agrees to watch over David's family. So he's gone into Moab to seek protection for his mother and father, as the text tells us. In Moab. Really? Moab? So why am I getting a little worked up about that? Well, thinking through about how odd it would be that the king of Moab would be so conciliatory to David because the Moabites had a long-standing history of animus with God's people. Moab was never nice to Israel. Israel was at war against the Moabites off and on throughout their existence to this point at any rate. 
when the Lord took his people out of Egypt and was taking them into the promised land. They went, or they tried, to go through the land of Moab, and so they sought uh, uh, permission to take a shortcut. And the people of Moab said, that ain't going to happen. And as far as these provisions you're asking us for, that's not going to happen. And so they were turned away. And then later on, in just one other example, it was the Moabites who hired Balaam. You might remember Balaam, who had that very unique donkey who could speak. Of course, today a lot of donkeys speak, but that's a different kind of speaking. It was the Moabites who hired Balaam to curse God's people on their behalf. So God, in light of who Moab was concerning his people, gave the people of Israel an edict. They were to never help the Moabites in their times of trouble. So again, David, you choose to go to Moab. Are you kidding me? Why Moab of all places and to entrust your mother and father with them? Well, one of our faith plumb lines here is that we let the Bible interpret the Bible. And so one of the reasons that we encourage you to read the scriptures, Genesis to Revelation, doesn't have to be in that order or anything, but to make it, it an a annual discipline to get through the Bible, because the more you put the word of God into you, even though you're not going to retain much of it, trust me, still the Holy Spirit has a way of bringing things to mind that have already been written upon your heart, so to speak. And so and as an example, I'm reading through here in the book of 1 Samuel. My book, my head is far away from other things in the Bible. But then I was thinking about why in the world would David go to Moab and it dawned on me. There's this little book, only four chapters long, called the book of Ruth. The story of Naomi, who's the key figure in the book of Ruth, outside of Ruth herself, is a faithful Hebrew wife. And she's a mother. And she becomes husbandless and sonless, times two, meaning she had two sons and she lost them both, leaving only her two daughters-in-law, both of them, from the land of Moab, where Naomi got there by following her knuckle-headed Elimelech, who took her to Moab because there was no food in Israel. But you do not go outside of the promised land of God regardless, and that's exactly what Elimelech did. And so God, again, in his majesty in orchestrating the affairs of the world, is trying to get Naomi to return, to come back to the land of promise under my special hallow protection of my people, and all that that means. And so she loses her husband, she loses loses her two sons, and now she's left with these two Moabitess ex, I guess technically, daughters-in-law. As the narrative plays out, Naomi decides to return to the land of her people, and she urges her two Moabitess ex-daughters-in-law by the name of Ruth, the name of the book, and Orpah, And she implores them repeatedly to leave her and return to their homes because it's not like she was going to ever have any more sons as far as she was concerned. And if she could, they'd be old, you know, past the uh, marrying age by the time her sons were grown and all that. So she says, look, there's nothing for you Moabitesses back in Israel. So return to your people, return to your place, your familiarity, all of that. Leave me and just go because I'm going back to my home. And Orpah in fact, listens to Naomi. 
And she says goodbye to Naomi and she returns to her people and to her culture and to her gods, small g. But Moabite Ruth had fallen in love with her Jewish ex-mother-in-law under the circumstances now. And Ruth was belligerent in her refusal to listen to Naomi and to leave her ex-mother-in-law and to go back to her family and her people and her pagan culture. And the passage I'm going to read is a very well-known passage because it is often used in wedding ceremonies. You'll see why. Ruth says to Naomi, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. And your people shall be my people. And your God, my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. Because here we are in this mind-blowing history that is a thousand years before Christ. And we see salvation by faith to everyone through this Gentile woman who comes again from an enemy nation with a very different culture, very different belief system, where all her blood relatives live, but she forsakes them all to become a worshiper of Yahweh, like her Jewish mother-in-law, Naomi. At the end of the book, in chapter 4 of Ruth, it becomes clear to me why the king of Moab in our text this morning was ready to give safe harbor to David's mother and father. You see, when Ruth and Naomi return back to the land of promise, Ruth meets a stellar, faithful Jew by the name of Boaz. And Boaz is a wonderful Christ figure. Not Christ, not pre-incarnate Christ. I'm not talking about a Melchizedek or anything but just by his virtue of who he is and his conduct to this Gentile woman and taking her to be his wife, there are so many parallels intentionally portending the salvation that comes through Christ and available to everyone. So Ruth meets Boaz and they fall in love and they marry and they have a son. And the neighbor women gave the son a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi and so they named him Obed. Okay, Obed. Big deal. Who is Obed and why is it huge? It is huge because Obed will grow up and he will marry and he will have a child who will be Jesse, who is the father of our David in this passage. Meaning what? meaning David has Moabite blood coursing through his veins. And it was common practice. In fact, it was obligation in this epoch to take care of one's relatives. And you see, David's grand great-grandmother turns out to be the godly Moabitess Ruth. A little side note, 
that I think is interesting. It may honestly be worthless, but I somehow I could not just get away from it. And so I'm going to share it with you. Ruth the Moabitess, obviously, again, was condemned by her pagan lineage, her pagan heritage, her pagan idolatry. But Ruth forsakes all of it, everything, everything important, everything familiar. She turns and walks away from it and abandons it all to go with her mother-in-law, basically telling her, not basically telling her, I will become like you in all things, including a worshiper of your God and a faithful follower of Yahweh. Think about what Ruth did right there. And you cannot not think of Matthew 10, beginning in verse 37. Jesus speaking says, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He who does not take his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. And he who has found his life will in fact lose it. But he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. And Ruth found her life. Orpah, on the other hand, abandoned following the life of faith in the one true God, losing it for a myriad of other reasons and her people's deities, You, the picture, please. You all know this woman. Her name is Oprah Winfrey, who was born into a Christian family. And early in her burgeoning career, she was pretty outspoken and readily identified as a faithful believer in Jesus Christ. But as things went on, if you know anything at all about Oprah, You know that she trickled away from her Baptist roots in Mississippi, becoming a devout follower of numerous, depending upon the epics in her life, of several different weird and strange political, political, spiritual affiliations. And to this day, as far as I could tell, her spiritual, new spiritual mentor has been now for for quite a number of years, is a, a, a whacked out guy by the name of Eckhart Tolle a German philosopher, spiritist, religious man. And the reason I bring this all up is that Naomi's Orpah abandoned her opportunity to walk in truth. And Orpah Winfrey abandoned hers as well. Uh, Did you see what I did there? Remember a few weeks ago when I talked a bit about the importance of names in the Bible? So now if you're confused, because her name's not Orpah, but Oprah, that's because Oprah's name is not Oprah. It is Orpah. But because people routinely mispronounced her name, she just decided, and her family decided, they just ignore it and let it be. But you see, Mr. and Mrs. Winfrey wanted their baby girl to have a biblical name, and so they named her Orpah. They named her Orpah Gail Winfrey, and that is her official legal birth certificate name to this day. I don't know that it's a prophetic foreshadowing. I really don't. 
But I just find the comparison of the two Orpahs to be profoundly interesting. Well, the word of the Lord comes to David in verse 5 through the prophet Gad saying, Do not stay in the stronghold, but depart and go into the land of Judah. David assured of the safety of his parents' heads out once again, staying a step or two or five ahead of Saul as best as he can. Then Saul heard that David and the men who were with him had been discovered. Now Saul was sitting in Gibeah under the tamarisk tree on the height with his spear in his hand, and all his servants were standing around him. Saul said to his servants who stood around him, Hear now, O Benjamites, will the son of Jesse also give to you all the fields of the vineyards? Implied is, as I will. And it's believed there too that him calling David the son of Jesse and not David is a dig. Won't even dignify his his existence, if you will, by name. Will he make you all commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds, implied as I will. For all of you have conspired against me so that there is no one who discloses to me when my son makes a covenant with the son of Jesse, and there is none of you who is sorry for me. Now he's just lapsing into whining. There's none of you who is sorry for me who discloses to me that my son has stirred up my servant against me to lie in ambush as it is at this day. And then who speaks up but Doeg the Edomite? He was standing by the servants of Saul and he said, Well, I saw the son of Jesse coming to Nob, to Ahimelech, the son of Ahituf. What's going on here is Saul is just whining and he's trying desperately to keep a grasp on his lead of the people that are currently loyal to him. But there is a pretty good tenant in the world of leadership, and I cannot remember if I read it, if I heard it, or if I just somehow came up with this on my own through my time in the military, and then in the world of business, I'm not sure, but here it is. If you are a leader and you have to remind those you are leading that you are the leader, you're no longer the leader. We find King Saul, 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 I'm sorry. We find King Saul cajoling the troops, if you will, his servants, those closest to him. We find him begging. We find him trying to buy his servants' loyalty. And one of Saul's complaints to those who were supposed to be faithful to him that none of his servants even keeps him filled in on when his own son is scheming with David and no one, and this is where he really goes low, and no one's feeling sorry for him and his struggles. <laughs> I see Saul in a corner singing to himself, Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me. Think I'll go eat some worms. First I bite the heads off. That Weren't you kids? Then I suck the juice out. Then I throw the skins away. Seriously? 
How many of you is that new to? Oh, you know what? Maybe it's a Midwest thing. Okay, I'll own it. <laughs> Sorry. All right. <clears throat> anyway, so now let's go back to Doeg. Remember how he had been detained at the sanctuary. And I believe, based on the context that we have, that Doeg did not remain there, but he was held up there by the sovereign God of the universe, who happens to be, in the words of Daniel, the most high ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. And in this case, the Lord's wish is in the process of getting rid of King Saul and installing his king, David, in his timing and in his way, by him who knows all things. God's sovereignty understood properly And of course we don't because we know we're all heretics. But if we did understand it properly, the sovereignty of God is compellingly encouraging. And I'm not talking about fatalism with what what I'm going to say. Fatalism is more of this, you know what, we all start out on this path and that path is destined and even those changes are already destined for you. So basically you are a pawn or a robot. You don't really have free will. You only think you have free will. But that no, that's not what I'm talking about and what I'm going to say about God's sovereignty. But God does sit in the heavens and he laughs over the foolishness of men who think they are so powerful and so mighty and that they command uh, tens of thousands of troops and uh, nuclear armaments and all of that. The fact of the matter is that God in his sovereignty is over it all and he is involved in all. And the older I get, the more and more I see him being way more up close and impersonal involved in the affairs of the world than I ever really would have thought of. So that when things happen to us that stink, it doesn't make them stink any less. But the God of heaven knew what was going to happen. Obviously, he is omniscient. That's, you have to, if you believe omniscience, you have to believe he knows everything before it happens. And so he's all of that. He knows the beginning, the middle, and the end, but there is no end for him because he's outside of eternity. So God's not only never taken by surprise, but he knows and he permits and he allows. And if things are going away that he knows is not going to be good for you individually, who is one of his chosen people or whatever it is, God will in his love put up barriers now you can crash through those barriers but he will put them up in many ways shapes and forms or through other people to keep us going through them and getting hurt and even when we go through them and we get hurt he also knew that outcome and prepares other things and all that and everything all that is to say is that with God as a sovereign loving all powerful omniscient God as we are seeing more and more I only wish I would have been at this level. I don't think it would have helped a lot, but it would have helped a little anyway in the previous eight years of the presidency. Because I tell you, I was so tightly wound with where America had been going and the lawlessness that was being practiced daily. But now I look at this 
and why we still have to exercise our prerogatives as a free people in a representative constitutional republic. All of those things are true. It doesn't mean nobody can sit back and just say, well, God's in control, so we'll just let him go. No. But at the end of the day, thy will be done. That's why we pray in the Lord's Prayer. And Jesus prayed, thy will be done. On the cross, he said, not my will, but thy will be done. Real quickly, yesterday afternoon, I was involved with a woman who has a matter of days probably to live on this earth, doesn't go to our church. She has metastatic cancer that's everywhere. I met her by meeting her husband at a business in town where I frequent Bless you. And I spoke with her, having met her here at the memorial service of Laura Paquette, of whom, and I never knew, was a lifelong friend of Laura. And so that was when I first got to meet this man's wife, who I knew she was going through a lot this summer and all with her cancer coming back and raging. And so I talked to her a couple times on the phone. She does love the Lord Jesus. She is a student of the word of God, meaning she doesn't just read the Bible. She studies it. And so I went out to spend some time with her only to go out very briefly and to read a very brief passage of scripture from Revelation, which I love when someone is at the end of themselves and understandably not feeling very well. But what I was trying to discern as I was talking to this dear sweet woman is what was really right now the immediate need of her trial. Because it wasn't pain. She made that clear. She has difficulty because she has brain mets now and all that that means. She has difficulty communicating a bit, keeping trains of thought, other things going on. This woman is having a horrid time. So I thought it would be something along those lines, but that wasn't it. She said, I feel sitting here, and she's still able to sit, although it's an effort, that I am a useless burden to my husband who was sitting on the couch across from her and to my daughter who was grown and helping her at these times when uh, her husband can't be home with her. I am a useless individual. I have no purpose and I'm nothing but a burden. And that's when I said, time out. And I was able to talk to her from personal experience of going through some things and not even near her level with my own trials with cancer, as you know. And I explained to her that the hardest thing in the world for me during that time was finally receiving help from you good folks to come and do the driveway, it was wintertime, shovel the snow, whatever it was, because I did not want Barb struggling with that on her own. And her situation is magnified manifold. And I said, but I came to realize 
that even in my cancer, God is using it in other people's lives. And he is using where you are right now today in other people's lives, in Dave or husband's lives, in my life. I said, every time I've gotten off the phone with you, I have been just so blessed and amazed at your faith. And it's challenging and it's convicting. And all these things, I said, you are not useless because you are a chosen vessel of God. Because he is sovereign and he knew of this day and he's had it all laid out. And that doesn't make it any easier, but it does make it letting the truth make the truth dispel the darkness that you are here as nothing but taking up space and oxygen and a burden. You have value today because you're a child of God and he is using you and will till you take your last breath. After I got done, I went, boy, and I apologized. I said, you know what? I had no intention of coming here today and yak, yak, yak. I was going to spend a few minutes because I know how wearing that can be and just read a little passion and get out of here. And she said, and again, this is with some effort. She said, I don't often like talking to clergy. And I thought... And you know, honestly, my words to her were right after that. I said, I get it. I said, I get it. And she said, but they don't get it. And she knew I got it. And I said, the reason I get it is because I had to go through it just like you're going through it. And so you see what all that was about? And I knew it then in my worst night of my cancer and the horrid, most horrid pain I have ever had in my life that was in, in, it was untouchable by medication. The pain was still there through the hours late into the morning. I was sitting up in a chair downstairs with my little dog Gus. And nothing changed except God broke through and I lifted my hands with the tears flowing and I'm not trying to be melodramatic, but I said, thank you, God in heaven, for this because I will be more attentive and more faithful and better able to give attention and care to people going through this as I never would have before. I would not choose it again. But in all likelihood, it is likely to come back. It's not a curable kind of cancer. And I meant with all sincerity, because it wasn't after the fact of the pain is gone and now, you know, you go. No, it was in smack dab in the midst of it. And when she, she indicated clearly she knows I got it, and she thanked me for coming, and she thanked me for yak, yak, yakking. Hopefully, it touched her spirit, and the Lord has given her a renewed sense in her infirm state that she is still a valuable child of God ministering to those around her. He is sovereign, and he is overall. And he is good and kind and loving. Let me have you stand.
Lord in heaven, thank you. I know that there are, I I'm, I'm, don't know, I'm going to bet though that there are people in here this morning, Lord, who are going through things in their lives that few have any clue of that they're going through them. Father, I pray you have dug deep down into their spirit today to touch them and to encourage them by this, by these words. And Lord in heaven, I implore all ears today that if they do not know you, the great God that you are in a personal way, you would mercifully reach down and open their heart and their minds and give them the faith necessary to say, I do, to the King of the universe. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the abiding Holy Spirit. We give you thanks and praise. Amen.